0: Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity and privilege uh, to worship you as we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, um, we are so thankful that we can come to you in the name of your son, by your spirit, and exalt your name, not only in song, but in the studying and the reading of scripture. We pray pray that you would encourage us, build us up, strengthen us, conform us to the image of Christ. Um, Instruct us, Lord, uh, where our understanding is short, we pray that you will uh, clearly teach us, O oh Lord. Uh, bless us now as we study your word and sing your praises. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Out ...of why the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices attached to that have ceased. And so we're going to look at some more implications of that tonight um, in our text. But Hebrews chapter 14, excuse me, chapter 10, starting in verse 14, says, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Let me pray real quick. Uh, Father, we do thank you for the opportunity, as we said a while ago, to read your word. Enlighten us, teach us, Father, illumine our hearts and minds so that we may move forward um, being the light of the world as you work in our hearts by your spirit. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. So most of us obviously all have been here for some time with this study. So we understand the broader context. This is an epistle. This is a letter written uh, from someone inspired by the Holy Spirit writing to the churches in this region, believers now being persecuted, feeling that pressure, are desiring to go back to the old ways of the old covenant. And so the author continues to argue argue that Jesus is better, that they do not need to go back. They need to persevere in the faith. Um, And so he does that in a, a lot of different ways. But we've looked at three ways. There's been instruction There's been exhortation and there's been warnings. Like later on in this same chapter, verses 26, 27, 28, and 29, and 30 is a warning passage. It is a strong warning passage to them. So he uses these three different ways to encourage them to persevere in the faith. Now, what we've been seeing really since halfway, well, really chapter 9 and and most of chapter 10 is where we are seeing the sacrifice of Jesus is a better sacrifice. And he's been comparing it uh, uh, to the sacrifice uh, in the Old Covenant. He's been also looking at that Jesus was a better mediator and his death was necessary during that time. Um, We've seen all of those things, the greatness of his sacrifice, why the animals were insufficient. And last week, we did camp out for a while, obviously in verses 11, 12, and 13, where we see that Jesus' offering took away sins, but also after he offered once, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and we looked at the significance of Jesus' uh, a coronation of sitting at the right hand of the Father and why that was important, important that very act that very event, why it was important, not only for atonement, uh, the the finality, the finishing of the atonement, but we also looked at, if you remember, what is he currently doing now? Because it says in verse 13, from that time waiting till so there's a time of sitting till his enemies are made his footstool right so what's going on there all this time period and, and we looked at that what christ is doing currently sitting at the right hand of the father he's interceding for us he's preparing a place for us but we also see that the kingdom is advancing to a specific day and time where christ will hand over the kingdom to his father and then we come to verse 14 where we'll begin tonight breaking this text down and we want to look at the perfect work of Christ um, in verse 14 specifically. And what we mean by the perfect work of, of Christ, yes, is atoning work, but we want to draw it in a little bit more narrow. That We want to see the perfecting work of our sanctification, perfecting us because of His perfect work. Okay. So because His work is perfect, all right, we have been perfected is, is the argument of the text. So let's look at verse 14 and let's break this text down. It says, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now if you notice there again, we've seen this in verse uh, all of chapter 10, but verses 11, verse 12, verse 13, now verse 14, this one offering, offered once, and once offered himself. And now we look here and it says, for by one offering. All the author is doing here is reiterating the fact, uh, again, the finality of Jesus' work compared to that of the old covenant and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices many sacrifices compared to one sacrifice so we see again he's trying to drive home to these the readers of this text one matters he keeps saying one on purpose the finality uh, uh, of Christ's work at this time but he also uses this word as well so for by one offering he has perfected forever. He uses the word perfected, and this is not the first time we have seen this word throughout this epistle. One of the times that we saw it was chapter 7 and verse 11. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for us. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there to have another priest rise up according to the order of Melchizedek, okay? He used it there. Later in the same chapter, down in verse 19, He says, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So Levitical priesthood could not perfect. The law cannot perfect. And even here in chapter 10 in verse 1, it says, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, um, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those approach perfect. So the Levitical priesthood cannot perfect, the law cannot perfect, and the sacrifices themselves cannot perfect. So every time you turn, well, maybe the priesthood, maybe the law, maybe the sacrifices themselves, these three areas of the Old Covenant cannot perfect man. But what do we mean by perfect, right? Because what we see here now is he makes a a, a proclamation, a declaration, right? For by one offering he has perfected. The first three times this word is used is always the negative. Cannot, 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 cannot. Now a declaration has been made, correct? What? The one offering now has perfected. Perfection has come, and look what it does. It's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So what do we mean by being perfected? Right here I would say, according to the language of the book of Hebrews, but of course the Bible's all, that sins, our sins, to use some of the language, are cleansed. Okay? Okay? Our sins have been removed so that the conscience is no longer defiled by guilt and shame where we see with Adam and Eve, right? There's guilt and shame, so there's retreating and hiding. It's the same thing that happens with our sinful nature. But now the Levitical priesthood, the law, the sacrifices could not cleanse our sins, could not remove our sins, and could not give us a guilt-free conscience. Okay? That's what we mean the goal. The goal of of all of this has always been for us to have our sins cleansed, removed, forgiven, so that our conscience is no longer defiled, but it is clean. It's ultimately clean. Our heart is clean. And now we can have fellowship, communion, and relationship with God forevermore. Because according to this text, is the perfecting work of Christ is it uh, uh, just momentarily? Is How long does it say in this text? For by one offering he has perfected temporarily? No, forever. All right? The implication here is not just a, 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 a one-time-in-this-moment perfection, but it is a perfection that remains perfect forevermore. That there is no ending of this perfection. And remember, what is the perfection we're talking about? There is no ending. Where our, where our sins are forgiven, removed, cleansed. My conscience is cleared, no longer defiled. I have relationship now with God, where I am not burdened by shame and guilt, where I am reconciled to God. That perfection is not temporary. That perfection is eternal. Okay, And it's rooted in, verse 14, how does this happen? For by one offering. Okay, You see the language here. He's rooting this perfecting work Not in the works of man, not in the Levitical priesthood, not in the law, not in your works. But it is rooted in one work, correct? The one offering. A high priest did a work. That high priest was Jesus. And the work that he did is he offered a sacrifice, but the sacrifice of himself. And so we need to remember that just for a moment, that hour. And we're going to see this later in this text. But this perfecting work. Is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ the foundation of our salvation is Calvary it is the atoning work of Christ it is his burial it is his resurrection it's all in that good work okay Because to put it into anything else is to take away from the gospel or to add to the gospel that's the whole theme of the book of Galatians right that's the whole book of Galatians, where the, 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 the ones in Galatians would tell you, the Judaizers, the ones with the false teaching, would say, well, yeah, Jesus died for our sins. They would, they would affirm that, and He was resurrected. And you need Jesus to forgive you of your sins, but you, but you also need to be circumcised. Right? You also need to do this. In modern days, we wouldn't say circumcision necessarily. We, we, would, add, we would add a religious activity, maybe it's a baptism. Uh, maybe it's our good works, like okay, it's good you have Jesus, but now you need to do these seven different sacraments. All right, and you got to keep these sacraments in order to remain saved, to be saved, and to remain saved uh, forevermore. Well, what you have just done is rooted the gospel and salvation and man's justification before God in Jesus and something else. And and what is what's Paul's reaction to that in Galatians chapter one? <laughs> it's not a very positive, is it? He twice says it, but he says, if an angel comes to you or even myself comes to you with a different gospel, let them be anathema, all right? That's the word of, 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 of damnation. So that's where we have to listen for that, okay? The, the word of faith movement with its heretics, you you got to look out that we're not adding works of legalism uh, to, to the gospel itself. So we have to be careful of those things. And again, it teaches us as Bible students tonight how important just one sentence in a verse is is that one offering has been perfected. So you and I have been perfected forever, not because you're a good boy or a good girl, not because your mom raised you in church, your dad raised you in church, or you've said the right words, or you're, you're even sound doctrine, as important sound doctrine is, right? Like my job as a pastor and other pastors here, one of the things we do is we guard the flock against false teaching. That's why we have to be apt to teach. We have to be able to say, that's a wolf and get the wolf out of here, right? We have to be able to do that. Even if people are like, well, that's not fun, that's, that's not kind. My job is not to be kind to wolves, I'm being honest. My job is to have a voice for the sheep, right? But I also have a voice for wolves, okay? No, you're done, get out of here type of thing. So we understand that this is why we study the text and to be reminded that these words matter. So the work of perfection, let's talk about that for a moment. The work of perfection in this text is objective. And it has been accomplished forever. The the work is objective. What do I mean by objective? There's subjective and there's objective, okay? What do I mean by objective? That in Christ, and please, please hear this for your heart and mind, in Christ you are perfected. Your heart, your mind, your will, your soul, your account, in Christ... You are perfected. Just let that sit for a moment. What is the standard to enter into the gates of heaven according to Scripture? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, does he not? He goes, your righteousness must exceed. a little tongue-in-cheek there. But he's like, hey, your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, right? There's a standard of righteousness that in ourselves is unattainable. Because we're sinners and we have sinned, we cannot reach the perfect perfect standard of righteousness to be in God's presence. And so is God's response to that? Christ comes. <laughs> and he is perfectly righteous, righteous. And for all those who come by faith, trusting in him to their account, do you know what's placed into your account? Perfected righteousness, holiness. In your account. This is what we mean by justification by faith alone. So if you notice in this text, there's two tenses, okay? One says, for he has perfected forever. All right, he has perfected is a past tense statement, okay? He has perfected it. It's not that he will perfect it, but he has perfected it forever. Now catch this, those who are being sanctified. So you have a present reality now, an objective reality, has perfected. Well, who um, has he perfected? Who does this perfection go to? Well, it tells us those who are being sanctified. Okay, there's, there's some tense work going on here. And when we talk about sanctification, we are talking about those who now are in Christ, who have been justified by faith alone, where Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is sanctifying them. And this is what we look at when it comes to sanctification. Now, there's two things about sanctification I want you to remember. There's something we call positional, and there's another we call progressive. And they're tied together, okay? Positionally in Christ, I am holy in my account. I have been set aside. The word holy means to be what? Set aside, all right? Separated unto. So in Christ, I am holy. I am sanctified. But there's also, we see, not positional, but we call progressive sanctification. And progressive sanctification that we believe is a work by God's grace of the Holy Spirit that is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, where He has taken away our desire for sinful things, crucifying the flesh, changing our desires, so that we may live unto righteousness. Several weeks ago, um, in Philippians 2, Pastor Mark talked about taking something off and putting something on, okay? That is a part of our sanctification where we are losing desires of this world. Well, how are those desires being taken away from us? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in you and He is cleansing, He's removing, He's adding, um, He's taking away, He's changing everything. It's the idea, I read years ago, but it's the the idea of, of remodeling a house, if you will, and you're going into different rooms, and there's some sweeping and vacuuming. There's sometimes, sometimes some things to be torn down. Some things just need a coat of paint. Some things need a whole new rebuilding of a wall in this room. In your heart, and in your life, and in your mind, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the means of prayer, through the means of the Scriptures, by the means of grace we talked about last week, through the means of worship, through the means of church discipline, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and cleansing you of sin. I want to show you something real quick. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the second verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Many of us are very familiar with what's going on in Corinthians. I was there for about four or five weeks. So, um, yeah, you really should really know a lot's going on in Corinth. But Corinth had a, was having a tough time, right? I mean, they're, they're a, new, a newly formed church. They're still toddlers, if you will. And 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 false teaching has come in. There's division in their ranks. They're in the they're in the third largest port city in the world. So you have all these different influences coming in, and and they're they're struggling at times. And we would go, whew, that church has got some problems, right? But catch this, First Corinthians chapter one, go to verse two. So the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Think about that for a moment. He knows what he's about to write about. He knows what they're going through. But what does he put here? That they are sanctified. This is where we get the word saints too. The saints of Corinth. The saints of First Baptist. Okay, So we see they are sanctified positionally in Christ. You are holy in Christ Okay, in your account. But listen to this. In Jesus Christ, call to be saints with all who in every place call the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So what's he tell in the next part? Not only positionally are you a saint, but what is your life calling supposed to be? Now you are to live out in this calling of being sanctified, okay? So I've used this illustration with you before when it comes to our calling to be saints. The Queen of England, correct? Her office, okay, her call is to be a queen. So do you believe she talks and acts like a queen? Well, yeah. Why does she eat like a queen and talk like a queen and walk like one and wave like one. Why does she do all that? Because she's what? Queen. Okay. Now you and I in Christ are holy. We are holy. And so we understand that you and I talk holy, live holy, think holy, dress holy, walk holy. Well, why do we do that? Because in Christ we are called to be what? Holy. Okay. Okay. So once we are in Christ, okay, our positions in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling with us begins to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That is one of His responsibilities, His jobs, the third member of the Godhead. But listen to this: that which is has union with Christ will begin to look and become like Christ. This is why this teaching destroys what we call easy believism and stuff. You and I, when we come to know Christ and Christ saves us, we are justified, and we're going to look at that for a moment. And as we are justified, declared righteous, a work has begun in us that will go until our death. And that is the work of sanctification, where God is cleansing you. Again, He's changing your appetites and your tastes. He's changing your thought process. He's adding some things. He's removing some things. Desires, your wills, your thought, your words, your actions, your temperament. All of that begins to become conformed to Jesus in his ways. Again, Philippians 2, have this mind in you which is in Christ Jesus. Well, how do we have that mind? Can I take the mind of Christ and just put it in my mind? No, we understand it is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit when we are regenerated, having a new nature now, and the Holy Spirit begins to cleanse us from sinfulness, our sinfulness and all of those things. So, if the work of sanctification is presently happening in our life or in your life, this means that the Holy Spirit is present, and the Holy Spirit is in you, cleansing, removing, and adding. It's like links in a chain. You've heard me say this before, right? Justification, and sanctification are two different acts, okay? By God's grace. But yet we see what? They're also connected, right? Those who are being sanctified, it points to the reality of their justification. Those who have been justified, they will be sanctified as well. And let me explain why we, we say it that way. So justification is the an act of God's free grace where he legally declares a sinner uh, not guilty, okay? We're acquitted of our sins, but we're declared not guilty. So now in our account, we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in our account by faith alone, okay? Not by our works, faith alone. And faith is the instrument by which righteousness is imputed to us. So we understand now we're justified, but because we have been justified, we have been changed. We have a new nature that's been Uh, created in the image of the righteousness of God. It's been created in the image of God. So if I have the image of God in Christ and that new nature in me, guess what the automatic work by necessity must start taking place in my life. If Jesus, let's use this way, if I was to teach a little kid this, if Jesus starts taking up home in my heart, guess what's going to start happening to the home of my heart? It's going to start what? Well, he wants the room this way. Oh, this is my home now, right? So what do you do when you buy a new home? What do you start doing, right? This is my home. I'm going to start doing things. So to some degree, Jesus moves in, if you will, by the person of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to cleanse us and work on us and change us and mold us into that image, what Christ desires of him. It is a process. So understand, if someone declares that they have been saved, there will be evidence of that salvation. For instance, if I if you moved into a new home, would people know if they've got new neighbors moving into the home, so to speak? Yeah, there's a U-Haul backing up. Right? Someone's taking residence now. Now the 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 foliage outside is gonna look different, it's gonna be new roses, there's gonna be new paint, there's gonna be new this. Why is it happening? Someone's living in there and there's evidence of that. The same way with you and me, if we have been regenerated in Christ, converted with new hearts and new minds. The Bible speaks of it, but it's also a logical conclusion. I'm going to look different too. I'm going to talk different. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to do a lot of things different in my life. So this is why we say if you've been justified, connected to that, the next chain is a must be sanctified. Because if someone claims salvation, and yet there is no change of heart and mind and will and nature What the Bible would speak to is we need to go back and look and see, does that person, have they been converted? Have they been born again? Do they know the Lord Jesus Christ? Especially if there is no change, okay? And this is what we call the doctrine of regeneration. We have the doctrine of sanctification. This is why we don't believe that you say some magic words, that's it, and you get to go disappear and live your life like you want to. That is nowhere in the Bible. That is nowhere in the Bible. Matter of fact, one of the things that we see, one of the very first fruits that you've been regenerated is faith and repentance. is turning away from things in our lives. So, sanctification is one of the evidences of the reality of justification. That I have been justified by faith alone. And it also lets you know, someone who is being sanctified, um, and I'll use my wife for an example, and my father-in-law, um, when it comes to the gospel, they, 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 were, they were saved and converted, probably probably at a young age and not really realizing what's going on. You say, what do you mean? What do you mean? They'll tell you when you come to them and ask about, when was the moment? They'll tell you, as far as I can remember, I have, I have loved Christ. <laughs> and I have hated sin. And I have, have, I have hated my sin and repented of my sin. And I love Christ and I follow Him. And I want to be conformed to His image. You know what they're producing? Fruits of what? in their life there's peace love joy so that is pointing back to what in their life the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit has taken up residence and he has changed them and he has made them alive and now they are showing that in Christ and yes they follow the Lord they follow the Lord in baptism and all that but we see that sanctification helps in pointing to the reality of justification but it starts with justification justification then sanctification as well so, sanctification cannot happen apart from your justification. And we also see your perfection in Christ now that you have in Christ and the future perfection that we have is rooted in Christ's work in this text. Okay? Your sanctification, it, is, it goes all the way back to the cross. Not only is the power of sin broken, excuse me, the penalty of sin is paid, so now I have justification before God, but the power of sin is broken, so now in my sanctification, I can be cleansed and say no. It's not saying it's going to be easy. Sometimes there's, there's the battle going on for a lifetime. Okay, But then also because of the work of Christ, All right. so there's the penalty of sin, justification. There is the power of sin or sanctification. And there's another P word. Because of the work of Christ, the presence of sin will be, will be removed from our lives. But when will that happen, that last step? Glorification. You see the connection there? Justification, leading to sanctification, leading to glorification. And so we see the penalty of sin taken care of, the power of sin taken care of, and we see the presence of sin taken care of. And it's all rooted, not in my work, not in your work, but verse 14 tells us, by the one offering, He has done these things. He's perfected us in Christ Jesus. So we, not the Levitical code... Not the priesthood, uh, Levitical priesthood, uh, the law, the animal sacrifices cannot make this reality in our lives. They cannot do it. The, 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 The blood of the animals could not cleanse. It could not sanctify the believer at that time. It did not have the power to do that. But Christ and Christ alone does. And by work of the Holy Spirit. So the last section here in verses 15 through 18. And now you understand why I didn't do that part last week, because we'd have been here for an hour and a half. So, so we see what? From verses 15 down to 18, we really have the witness of the Holy Spirit now. Okay? We have the work, the perfecting work of Christ in sanctifying us and cleansing us. But we see in verses 15 to 18, now the witness of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 15, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before... So let's, let's 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 catch a couple things in this statement. Number one, he's introducing again the holy spirit witnessing. And what does he do here? He specifically in verse 16, he quotes Jeremiah 31:3 again. So the writer of Hebrews believes in the inspiration of scripture, <laughs> okay? Cuz he is crediting Jeremiah 31:3 the author of Hebrews to whom Jeremiah or the holy spirit ultimately the holy spirit the Holy Spirit inspired to write these things even in the Old Covenant. And we see that he is working through Jeremiah. Jeremiah says these things, but he says, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. So this implies there's been other witnesses of the finality of Christ's work, all right? And what is that? Christ himself, Christ says, uh, the priest, his offerings, the once and for all at Calvary. All of those things are witnesses. Also, his sitting down, verse 12, at the right hand of God is a witness so there's all these witnesses he's lining up if you will and then he brings another he says even the holy spirit bears witness to the work of christ and the reason i, I want to say that is people may ask is the holy spirit in the old testament according to this verse where is he yeah he's in the old testament all right he's in every word he's in every page because it's inspired we believe that um we believe in the, the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture So we see the inspiration of Scripture, we see the witness to the reality of Christ as a better offering, and in verse 16 and 17, he sort of brings up again an abbreviated version of the new covenant that's promised in Jeremiah 31. Now, I'm not going to expound all upon it again, because I did that in Hebrews chapter 8 when we went through the new covenant. But he does write, this is the covenant, verse 16, that I will make with them uh, after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, laws into their heart, their minds, I will write them, and he adds their sins and lawless deeds I remember no more. So, why is this important? Well, he pulls back on the table the new covenant for us that God prophesied in Jeremiah 31. It's a section where, where they're, he's giving them all this hope for the future after uh, their exile. Okay? He's letting them know. You're not gone forever. You're going to come back. And he gives them these lists of promises. And one of the promises he gives in Jeremiah 31 is a better covenant. I'm going to give a better covenant to your household. And and, and we looked at that last time. But one of the things, real quick, in verse 16, we see one of the promises that he witnesses here. So verse 16 and 17 deal with two problems that we have. One problem is obedience, right? We're talking about sanctification, being perfected. In verse 16, he writes the following verses, and what we see here is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty in sanctification and God's sovereignty in the covenant. Because here's the problem. The problem was obedience. If you remember the old covenant, it wasn't God that was faulty in the the old covenant. you remember what he said in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews, excuse me, Jeremiah 31, it was the people. They couldn't keep the covenant. They could not obey. At times they would not obey. And they're constantly breaking this covenant. This is why we have the Levitical system to begin with, right? Their disobedience, constantly having to have a sacrifice. Day of atonement, day of atonement, day of atonement. So we have the problem of obedience. So what does God say here? He sovereignly acts. And what does He do? Sovereignly writes and places the law of God upon His children's heart and mind. We're no longer, there's this external motivation, but now there is an internal desire and motivation for the children of God to obey. Not under the threat, the Old Testament was what? Do this or die. Now, because we've been regenerated, and part of that regeneration is the Holy Spirit comes, God sovereignly writes these things on our hearts, and we talked about um, what it meant for it to be on our heart and what the law meant to be on our minds. So the desire to obey... From us, as children of God, our desire to obey, hear this, doesn't start with you. <laughs> yes, it's in your soul, it's in your heart, it's in your mind, but God writes it there, and that desire to obey and to follow Jesus doesn't come from, holy, from human beings. The Bible ascribes that to the power and sovereignty of God. Okay? So where you've gotten this far in your life, you will not boast in yourself and your walk. To whom will you boast? In yourself or to whom? Jesus, right? right. I, I was dead in sin. I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't chasing God. And if I was chasing for a God, it was a God in my own image who agreed with James on everything and let James live the life that James wants to live. You know what that's called? An idol, okay? Then Jesus shows up and Jesus changes my heart and my mind. So even when Christ calls me to do the hard things, His Spirit residing in me, does what for us? It challenges us to say what? Yes to Christ and no to the world. But you'll be mocked. I choose Christ. You'll lose your job. I choose Christ. They will reject you. I choose Christ. They will kill you. Well, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I choose Christ. Where does that power come from? Was Paul just better than all of us and better than most Christians? Where, where does that come from? From the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of an Apostle Paul, an Apostle Peter, and the believers who are in him. And so now we walk in obedience, not because we're smarter or better, but we believe it starts with the power of God, the Holy Spirit living in us. And now we're like David. I delight in the law of the Lord. The law, I do not see it as that burden upon my back, the lashes upon my back all that's been satisfied in jesus and now the law the law guides me and it teaches me what holiness is and i don't fear the law and its condemnation why because i've been told therefore now there is no condemnation for those who in christ so the law will teach me hey this is this is how you should live this is good and because of the holy spirit living in me and this regenerating work i love that law i love it because i love the lawgiver And what he gives us in the Ten Commandments. Guys, that is good. That is good. It helps us. And even if our society doesn't realize it, it's for their good as well. Thou shalt not murder is a pretty important law, right? Right? Thou shalt not steal. Right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. You ever had someone lie about you and you couldn't do much about it? Do you see how good these things are? Now we delight in them. Because He's told us right there, those in the New Covenant. So God in Himself, Ezekiel 36 and 37 speaks to this, God Himself takes care of the issue of obedience. When He gives us a new nature, you and I, from this desire, we desire to obey the Lord. And it's not a robotic desire, it's a change of nature. It'd be, again, if I've used the the lion illustration, right? Right? So the lion, the oats, and the meat. According to his nature, if he's hungry, what's the lion want to eat? The meat. Even though the oats would fill him, right? But what if you changed his nature? What if his nature was changed and he wanted to be a vegetarian now? Well, I don't know. No joke. But be a vegetarian, right? And he would eat the oats and he would delight in the oats. And I wouldn't have to force him. No, you're going to eat these oats. No, his nature has changed. And he willfully and joyfully, full of delight, will say, what? Where'd you get these oats? These are really good, right? Why? His nature has been changed. It's the same with us. Sovereignly, God changed our nature. All right? You didn't change your nature. You don't know how to do that. You can't do that. It's impossible. Christ changes your nature. Now that which you were just like, oh, we got to do that religion stuff again. We go all the time. And now what do we do? Oh, let's sing hymns on a Wednesday night about Jesus. (laughs) Let's get in here and hear the word for an hour. Let's do this. Well, what happened? Jesus happened. Change of nature. So it leads us to the next problem he takes care of. So the obedience problem led to sin, right? They would disobey. It would lead to sin. It would lead to the second problem. Well, what do we do with the sins committed, right? So we have in this covenant now, obedience is taken care of. Now, what do we do with sins? What if there, there is disobedience? Well, look at verse 17. And these two words or three words, depending on your translation, are very important. And sort of he's emphasizing. This is his main point in, in this section as far as verse 15, 16, 17. Then he adds, so he wants to show emphasis here, add something. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. We see a lot of times in the Old Testament, Psalm 25, Psalm 79, Isaiah 64 where there's this connection between the forgiveness of sins and God remembering. There's this connection here. And sometimes speaking about the forgiveness of sins, instead of saying forgiveness, God says, I will not remember. It's, It's another word you could use for forgiveness many times in the Old Testament. There's this connection right here with God and in the New Covenant that when it comes to the sins that have been committed, there is forgiveness. And what that also means, the text tells us, that he chooses to remember them no more. And please hear this. This is one of the unique aspects of the new covenant. Because in the old covenant, did God remember sins? Think about it for a moment. Okay? What happened every year after every year after every year? They had to deal with similar sins, right? Our Atonement happened, day of atonement, temporary. But then this next year, what happened? The temple would become, undef- would become defiled. The people become defiled. The high priest was defiled. And guess what would happen? All the sacrifice, all that would happen again, over and over and over again. But in the new covenant, because of the offering of Jesus Christ, this one offering, there is a promise in it that you come to Christ that one time by faith alone. Guess what happens with your sins once and for all? Not only in past, not only present, but also for the sins that are to come next year or two hours from now. Guess what? They're forgiven forevermore. The very, the very fountain and the source of our forgiveness of sins in the past, forgiveness of sins currently, and the forgiveness of sins in the future, the very source of that is the one offering of Jesus Christ. That is the fountain of our forgiveness. So that is why five years from now, when I'm in my study in there and I'm praying and I can have hope and assurance in the forgiveness of sins, why? Because I am in the new covenant in Christ where my sins, all sins, have been atoned for. So therefore, I now, even walking in holiness, desiring holiness, will move forward. And when I stumble, when I sin, when I do those things, I go to the throne of grace and I can seek forgiveness. And guess what will be found there at that fountain named Jesus Christ? Forgiveness is there. Forgiveness is there as we come with broken and contrite spirit. So we see the sufficient work of Christ does all of that. And there's one last thing it does in verse 18. There is no longer an offering for sin. That's logical, is it? Is it not? See, the reason they had to deal with sin, they would atone for sins temporarily, but more sin always would happen. Why? Because we're sinners. <laughs> You're going to sin. So they had to do another sacrifice. Well, the logic is here is if there's one sacrifice good enough to cover all sins of those who are in that new covenant once and for all, can we still wrap our mind around that? That's still glory to Lord. Anyway, it's so good. It's so sufficient. It's so final. It's so secure. Then why do I need to keep, I don't need next year to have Jesus come again because they're still forgiven. Five years from now, I don't need a bull. Jesus doesn't have to do it again. Why? Still is good, still sufficient, still sufficient, still sufficient. For all eternity in my glorified state before God, before God, His saving work will be the reason and the ground of why we're still there before Him on that day. We will sing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. We will sing those songs. We will glorify Him. So in heaven, we will remember the cross and we will remember the work of Jesus on our behalf. And we will celebrate that. And now the logical conclusion that he's bringing to these people who want to go back, it's done. There is no more offering to be made for sin. Because if there's an offering that needs to be made for sin two years from now, what does that tell us about the work of Jesus? wasn't good enough, but his work is so finished and so good there will never be another moment or need for a sacrifice for sins to make atonement for our sins. It's done. Can our hearts and minds, just for a moment, grab a hold of the gravity of that reality? It's almost like that's too good. <laughs> that that Okay, James, you, you're getting a little far-fetched. I'm not. I'm not. This is the overwhelming, and I hate to use this word right now, I don't hate to use it, but... The I say radical, but the amazing, overwhelming, great, good news of salvation to sinners who have guilt and shame. Well, I could say, listen, on the shame of guilt of yesterday is gone, but the shame and guilt that accompanies sin today, the shame and guilt that will be in the future, that you commit, all of that is gone in Jesus Christ. So what do I do now? Follow Him. That's it, yeah. Follow Him and His commandments. Is that not what the Great Commission says? Going to all the nations, baptizing them, but also what? Teaching them all that I have commanded. That's what we do now. We follow him. We're disciples in connection with that. So, any questions? How about that? Any at all? Amen, amen. Um, Some some things for prayer. Uh, Richard uh, Dunaway, uh, Tina's husband.